0: Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning's gospel is taken from Matthew chapter 16. And Matthew 16 is a really interesting chapter because if you go back to uh, the parts that precede this, it gives us some very important context for what is going on in this morning's passage. So if you go even earlier than Matthew 16, a couple of chapters before that, you see Jesus doing all sorts of amazing things, healing the blind, healing the lame, giving hearing back to the deaf. You see him walking on water. You see Him feeding the 5,000. You see Him feeding the 4,000. And so just on the heels of all of that comes the beginning of Matthew chapter 16, which is the Pharisees and the scribes approaching Jesus and saying to Him, Lord, give us a sign. Now, the sign that they're demanding is exactly the kinds of things that Jesus has been doing day after day after day, right in front of them, feeding these people. The Pharisees have been with Jesus, following him around, and yet their hearts are hard and they do not understand. And So many of us, I think, are able to look at the Pharisees and say, well, I would never have done that. I would have been clued in. But the fact of the matter is that of all the people who should have been clued in, it was the Pharisees and the scribes. They are the leaders of the people of God, the people in charge of the keeping of the Word of God. But yet clearly, they just absolutely missed it. So this is what you might characterize for Jesus as kind of a tough day at the office. So they just don't get it. And so he comes back from that encounter to His disciples, to these 12 who He has called out from all around and brought them together to be this band of brothers who have lived together, and He has poured Himself into them. And He says to them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And as you probably know from being good churchgoers, yeast and leaven are all through the Bible as a symbol of sin. And so, the yeast of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees is their wrong teaching, their wrong understanding. But since it's a bad day at the office, uh, the disciples don't get it either. And so, it says they discussed among themselves and concluded that it was because they had no bread, that once again they had forgotten to get bread for the journey, and that was what Jesus was talking to them about. And so then Jesus says, But did you not understand about the feeding and all of this? And clearly the disciples are just, duh. They do not get it. So Jesus is possibly feeling a little bit discouraged at this point. And they're on this journey uh, where they end up in Caesarea Philippi. And then we get this vignette this morning, which is one of the most important passages we could ever encounter. And we're going to look at three parts of it. We're going to look at where they are when this passage takes place and why that matters. We're going to look at the first interesting question that Jesus asked to them, and then the interesting answers that they give back. And then we're going to look at what is arguably the most important question ever asked in the history of the human race. So, starting with where they are and why that matters, they are in Caesarea Philippi. And many of you who have been to the Holy Land with Jeff have been to Caesarea Philippi, and others of you have heard of it. It is a famous ancient city, and it has deep roots. Um, There have been people living there for thousands of years, and its original history is not so great. Um, It was a place that was dark. Uh, It was a place that was devoted to the pagan cult of worshiping Pan and all that went along with that. And so, there's a spiritual darkness there. But coming along about 20 BC, um, the emperor Caesar Augustus took this area and made it a present uh, to King Herod. And Herod built up the city... Uh, in honor of the Emperor Caesar Augustus, in the way that the, only the Romans could do, littered it with temples, big colonnades, big public buildings. All of them focused on the cult of the emperor, worshiping the emperor as a god. And when Herod died, Philip the Tetrarch, King Philip, made Caesarea Philippi his administrative capital and built on this legacy that had been given him from Herod and Caesar Augustus. And it became a place focused on the worship of Caesar Augustus, on the worship of the power of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire that had ever been. It was a place filled with political patronage and intrigue, and a place full of revelry in all things worldly. So you could say that the people in Caesarea Philippi we were looking for answers in all the wrong places. They were looking at worldly advancement and wealth. They were looking at position, how they could get ahead. They were looking at the political power of the Roman Empire and the idea that the government will save us and that worldly power is all that matters. And there's a backdrop to all of this of worldly paganism and a spiritual view that is not committed to God. So in some ways you could say Caesarea Philippi is not unlike our culture today. People looking for spiritual answers but in all the wrong places. People becoming obsessed with what is going on in the government and the political world and thinking that that is where the solutions to all of the problems that cause crisis after crisis Uh, is going to be found. But Jesus, coming into Caesarea Philippi, takes a different tack. He refocuses the conversation, and he first asks them an interesting question that has some interesting answers. And that first question is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this is an interesting question on several levels. First, because uh, it is, not very threatening it's a third person question what are those people those people out there uh, the proverbial man and woman in the street who do they say what are they saying what's the word on the street about the son of man and the interesting thing about that is that the son of man is a title that for jewish people had a lot of resonance but it made different sense to different people based on their background. For some people, the Son of Man meant Jesus. They had come to encounter Jesus and they knew he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But Son of Man is a term that comes from the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, And it was also a term that was in favor for the people who were looking for a Messiah who was a military ruler and king, who would come in and would beat up on the Romans and throw them out and restore the kingdom of Israel to the power and glory and prestige that it had in the days of King David. And there were people in both these camps uh, who were around uh, Jesus' followers. So the interesting thing is that when you look at this question about who do people say that I am, it's basically this whole idea of what's the word on the street, what are people saying, what's in casual conversation, uh, it is low risk. And the answers that come back are the conventional wisdom of the day. So the answers that come back are some people say Elijah, Some people say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, All of those are good answers, and Jeremiah and Elijah and the prophets are certainly people to be commended, but they have one thing in common. They're all dead. All of those people are dead. Their ministry is over. They are no longer impacting the world. And so, they are... uh, people who it's nice to be associated with but not people that are going to do anything now to change the course of history. And the interesting thing about this is that these people all served God. They were all people who died after serving God. And so, many of these answers are seeing Jesus as just another religious figure, another teacher in this long line of people that has come before. None of their answers that are coming from these people on the street are coming from independent inquiry or research. And the problem with that is that conventional wisdom is defined as what other people are saying. It's what people think is the case, um, but it's not based on any examination or inquiry of the evidence. They've just accepted it from other people. And what that means is that you are very apt to be led astray by what other people are thinking. So basically, these crowds of the disciples are quoting are saying this, Jesus, he's a great guy. He's a great and wise teacher. Clearly, he had a special connection with God. He's kind of like one of those prophets of old. And isn't that nice? And interestingly, That is not far off from how the general public thinks about Jesus today, 2,000 years later. They think Jesus was a wise teacher. He was a nice guy. He probably even had some kind of special connection with God. It's like that old Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And then forget and go on to whatever the next topic of conversation is. Jesus doesn't really matter. It's interesting, it was nice that He was around, uh, but He doesn't make any difference to me. And the interesting thing is that although people may dislike Christians, uh, they may dislike the church and think it's a terrible institution, uh, they may be aggressive in their atheism, most people don't really dislike Jesus or at least the idea of Jesus they have in their heads. He's just irrelevant to them and their daily lives. So that brings us to the third and most important point, which is the most important question ever. Because right after Jesus has asked them, Who do people say that I am? and they've given back all these answers, which are right, they're reporting accurately, Jesus dramatically shifts the scene and focuses in and looks them in the eye and says, but who do you say that I am? And that is altogether a different matter. You, not others, not cheap talk, what is the conviction of your heart? And who do you say that I am? Jesus right in front of you, speaking to you, not some idea or philosophical construct or feeling, but the living incarnate Jesus right in front of you. And that is the kind of question that demands an answer where you search your heart and where you think carefully. But the problem for most of us, even those of us who are Christians in our culture today, is that we have bought into that idea of moderation in all things. So, we want to have a moderate response to that question. Uh, We want to very often say, yes, Jesus was a good teacher, he gave good advice, and he loved everybody. Kind of like Paddington Bear. But that kind of Jesus does not threaten the status quo and i love the way that the great anglican evangelical scholar john stott put it he said this if you actually read the bible you'll see that nobody who ever met jesus christ ever had a moderate reaction to him there are only three reactions to jesus in the bible they either hated him and wanted to kill him they were afraid of him and wanted to run away and get out of his presence or they were absolutely smitten with Him and wanted to leave every other part of their life and follow Him with all of their heart, giving their whole lives to Him. The question, who do you say that I am, and how each person answers it, must be the starting point for understanding not just about our eternal life and salvation, but really about why we are here what is the purpose and meaning of this life? Because if Jesus is who he said he is, if he is the incarnate son of God, pre-existing before everything else, co-eternal with God, the eternal word that created everything in this earth, then being in relationship with him and knowing who he is changes everything about the way we live our life. And part of the problem, if you are like me, is it is all too easy to forget how central Jesus is to everything. It is so easy to slip into moderation. And as we look at our culture and we wring our hands about all the things that seem to be going wrong, and we look in the political sphere, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, and look at how broken and messed up and scandalous everything is, we always get sidetracked and we start thinking about what we need to do to fix this thing or that thing, and we start looking for answers in all these worldly things that can never resolve the question. The most important thing for every single person on this earth, each of them created in the image of God and designed for meaning and purpose and joy, even when we reject that, is to come face to face with Jesus and answer that question the right way. The question is not how do you feel about Jesus, or do you like the Christian faith, or do you like the tenets of every doctrine, or do you think that Christianity will help you self-actualize, does it go along with your feelings and make you feel fulfilled, um, or that you want to oppose it because it doesn't agree with the secular creeds you've embraced. None of those things make any difference, because if Jesus is who He said He is, It absolutely changes everything. The most important thing is to look Jesus in the eye, pray, look at the evidence of what He says about Himself in the Scriptures, to study the evidence about His life, and then to reach the conclusion uh, that He is the incarnate Son of God. But the problem is that we so often get lulled into moderation. And there's a great quotation from C.S. Lewis where he says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Christianity, if true, is of ultimate importance. The one thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. But I would suggest to you that many of us, including me, a lot of times as we live our lives, we live as if it's moderately important. It's important, it's up there with our tennis game and garden club and doing our housework and bringing up our children and going to work, but it's kind of co-equal with all those things. But that is not the position that Jesus wants to occupy, and it is not the position that God sent him to this earth for. He sent him to be the Lord and Savior of all mankind. As Peter said, the son of the living God, who demands that we follow him. As many of you know, we were recently on vacation during the month of August. And one of the highlights of all of our travels was going to Bamberg. Now, you may think, get a life. (laughs) No offense if you're from Bamberg, South Carolina, but Bamberg is not usually a place high on people's lists that they're uh, on their bucket list of vacation places to go. But no, we were not in Bamberg. South Carolina, we were in Bamberg, Germany, which is in Bavaria, and is one of the most beautiful cities in Europe. And that particular city is known as the Rome of Germany, because it is an ancient city built on seven beautiful hills surrounding the intersection of several rivers that come together right in the heart of the historic district. It is spectacularly beautiful, full of tourists, but lovely anyway. And as you walk around Bamberg, your eye is continually drawn in one direction, because out of those seven hills that the city is constructed upon, your eye is drawn to that highest hill, and on the highest hill of Bamberg is the cathedral. And it is a very vertical, high cathedral, so that you cannot help but look at it. And when we finally climbed up the hill and went into the cathedral, which is over a thousand years old and absolutely enormous, the center aisle is probably three times as long as the one of St. Philip's. As you walk up to it, and it's a Catholic cathedral, as you walk up the aisle toward the altar, there's something very unusual. And the thing that's unusual is that right at the first step that goes up to the altar, there's this giant case. And in the case is a very large Bible, and the Bible is open to a particular page, and it's bracketed with metal clips, so you can see it was very intentionally open to this page. And as I looked at it and saw that there was a passage in the middle highlighted, I thought, this is really great. They are putting the Word of God front and center here in this church where there are hundreds, if not thousands, of tourists every single day. And so, I was about to walk away when my friend Quintus from South Africa, who I'd met on this trip, was looking at the book and saying to me, this is truly extraordinary. And I said, well, yes, it is. How great that here in this Catholic church there is this big Bible right in the middle drawing your attention. And he said, no, 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 that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about what the passage says, and I said, well, I don't know what the passage says, because it's a German Bible, and I don't speak German. And being from South Africa, he did know German, and he read it to me, and it was Matthew 16, 13 through 20, our passage for this morning, with the center part highlighted, who do you say that I am? And I commend that church for putting that most important question right in front of everybody. But it made me think what if you don't speak the language? If you don't speak the language, you can walk right by the evidence every day, and you can think that's nice, but it never will engage your heart. And so, that brings me in closing to two calls that I think this passage makes on our life. The first is to understand that so many people in our culture don't speak the language. It's like walking by a book in German. They don't, know, they don't know that Jesus is even a question to be thought about. They know something about Jesus. They might think He's a teacher or a liberator or somebody who's loving, but they mostly just think of Him as another advice giver, like Dear Abby or something like that, who's largely irrelevant. And many of them have actually been taught that Jesus doesn't matter, that he's just another in these long line of pe- people, um, not much different from any other advice guru. But for us who know the truth, we have a responsibility to reach out to those people, to invite them to come and see. To love our lives in such a way that they see that in a culture where there's despair we still have joy to bring them into our parish family and let them see that there's love and belonging and community that can happen to bring them where they can see the glory of worshiping god in spirit and in truth and to help them understand that Jesus, who they thought was irrelevant, is actually the most important thing, the most important person in the world that they could ever hope to encounter. But the second question and the more uncomfortable one for us this morning for each of you sitting in the pews who got up this morning and put on what might be uncomfortable clothes and walked out into a wet blanket of humidity and struggled to find parking so you could come sit in this pew the question is who do you say that jesus is even if you've been sitting in the same pew that your grandparents sat in That is no guarantee that you have not fallen in with the conventional wisdom. Who do you say that Jesus is? It is the most important question for every man, every woman, every student, every boy, every girl to answer because on that question hinges not just your eternal life, but the way that you live in this world, understanding what you are here for, why God made you, what you have been brought to Charleston to do, all of these things hinge on answering that question. It is so much more than Jesus is just all right with me. The great thing is that as Jesus looks into your eyes and asks you that question, He doesn't see the good church person front that all of us like to put on. He looks in and sees your insecurities and your fears your pride the things that you are ashamed of that you would just die if anyone else knew he sees all of those things and yet he loves you more than anyone that you have ever encountered and desires to bring you to himself to live with him forever and in the midst of that love for him He wants to give you back your life, not in a way that is full of anxiety and stress, but in a way that is full of joy and meaning and purpose. My friends, we're going to sing this hymn at the end today that is a great frame to the hymn we started with. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. The one foundation of your life should be Jesus Christ. And at the end of the service today, we are going to take our cue from Peter and sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Standing up for Jesus is not a moderate thing to do. It is a thing that is rooted and grounded in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. But when you stand up and acknowledge him, that is walking into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, we confess to you how caught up we get in the pride and hypocrisy and vainglory of this world. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to look into your eyes, to know the fullness and truth of who you are, the very incarnate Son of God, the eternal Word of the Father, and that we might come into deep relationship with you where we follow you hard with all of our heart. Lord, we pray for any who do not know you this day that they would give their hearts to you. And we pray for all of us who do know you, who are surrounded by people who don't speak the language, that you would help us be translators and ambassadors for Jesus. For we pray all this in his most holy name. Amen.